0: hound
1: podcast hello and welcome to the horse and hound podcast supported this week by british horse feeds i'm pippa room magazine editor here at horse and hound well i hope you've all been enjoying some good weather and perhaps even watching some wimbledon on television or even popped down to london and uh, seen a few matches in person Our interview this week is with Greta Mason, who took the national under 25 title at Bramham last month with her partner of 10 years, Cooley sure.
2: You know, this would be the biggest track I had ridden and I, I was nervous. But you know, he, he did done fantastic and he did try his heart out, bless him.
1: We'll look back on Bolsworth, talk about the future of show riding ponies and advice for horse owners as the cost of living crisis continues. We'll then kick off a new series with Farrier Sam Draycott, who has insight on what to do when you head down to the field and find your horse only has three shoes on. We've definitely all had that problem.
3: So when you do lose a shoe, the best thing is to not actually turn the horse out, which I know a lot of people quite like to do that because they don't want to muck out and stuff like that. But as you turn the horse out, the actual breaking of the foot makes it harder for us to nail the shoes on.
1: More from Sam later. So we've lots to get through, Pull on those overreach boots and let's get started. So, I'm delighted to be joined now by our guest this week, the new national under 25 venting champion, Greta Mason. Greta finished second overall and best of the Brits in the British Horsefeed sponsored under 25 class at Bramham last month. Hello, Greta. Welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. and We want to start off by finding out a little bit more about you and really introducing you to our podcast listeners. Obviously, we spoke about you a couple of weeks ago when we were reviewing Bramham, but this is a good chance for everyone to really get to know you. So tell us a little bit about your background. How old are you and where are you from originally? So I'm
2: 25 this year. So it was my last year in 25 uh, classes I was actually born in Australia initially, and I was there for about eight years before moving back. Um, all of my family are English, uh, so we came back over here mainly for that reason. And yeah, I started riding when we moved back. Um, my mum had ponies and, and did bits when she was younger. So then we, we got some ponies and went through the pony club. And that kind of sparked off my love for renting. Wow, so
1: why were you born
2: in Australia? Were your parents out there for work? or?
1: Yeah, my mum
2: initially moved over there for work, um, but they really liked it out there, so they ended up staying, I think longer than they planned. But I think the idea was always to move back at some point. Okay, interesting. And
1: you said that your mum your mum is horsey, is sort of the horsey side of the family,
2: and that was what got you going. Yeah, well, she had ponies when she was younger and did a better pony club. Um, she didn't do anything overly competitive like what I'm doing now, but um, she's always had horses and been a part of that kind of that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: and which pony club were you in? Um, I was with the Burley Pony Club. Okay, and and you obviously grew up in that sort of Burley, Lincolnshire area.
2: Yes, yeah. Um, so Burley is really local for us. I did all all pony club teams, the kind of took part in everything, camp and rallies and all of that, um, and then. When I, well, when I was finishing school and I took my teaching qualifications and I did quite a lot of teaching for them as well. And it's been really nice to be a part of, part of all of that and get involved. I've made so many friends doing so. So that's been an amazing experience.
1: Yeah I think sort of your pony club branch is the foundation of lifelong friendships for a lot of us in uh, in horses and the horse that you rode at Bramham Cooley for sure I know that you've had him for 10 years so he's obviously been a really big part of your story tell us a bit more yeah. about <laughs> tell us a bit more about him how did you sort of originally
2: find him and come to ride him so um he was actually initially bought my brother Silas uh, I'm a twin um so we were kind of doing the same thing at the same time and both moving on to horses at the same time and he was was looking for a horse and actually they went my mum and my brother went to look at a, a different horse but I think that had been sold and the lady who who had that horse said, Oh well I, I've sold I've sold him but I have got this five year old um, which might be a bit green for what you're looking for but anyway they tried him anyway and they loved him and they we got him um and that's kind of how we came to have him, and then my brother did do a few hundreds on him, did bits with him, and then when he decided he needed to study and focus on his um exams for uni, I then took over to the ride. okay, and
1: what was what was he like and um, sort of as a horse and a, a character when you first started riding him?
2: um he's always been very keen, and I mean he's definitely become easier in his older age but um then he's always been a really nice force to have around he's he's very irish he used to be a bit of a tank and used to like charging everywhere 100 miles an hour So definitely with a bit more schooling and all that he's he's become a lot easier but no he's he's a massive part of our family and he is a character you I mean, he's, he's not a bit particularly difficult or anything like that but he he has We've been sharp enough, but we've had to work quite hard. It's, the dressage has always been our weakest phase. It's always been quite difficult to get the dressage, which I feel like we are finally getting now. Um, but it has taken time, and it's nice that the training is paying off. For sure. And what sort of stage
1: in your teenage years did you decide that eventing wasn't just going to be a hobby for you, that it was something you were going to pursue sort of on a more professional basis?
2: Well, I think as much as my parents had wished I hadn't gone that direction. I think I think when I I did pony and I I didn't have a horse quite for juniors, but I was never particularly academic at school, and I'd always kind of when I was supposed to be revising, I ended up riding, and I, I think everyone was trying to tie me down to go and do my schoolwork, and instead I just wanted to go and ride the horses. So I don't think I've ever really thought about doing anything else because. I don't think I'm particularly good at the academic side. That uni wasn't ever really a direction I wanted to go in. So I think I kind of always had my sights firmly set on going down the eventing route.
1: And I know that you said when we were speaking at Bramham that you're now based at Rodney Powell and Alex Franklin's yard. Just um, sort of tell us how that came about. When did you decide to move there and what was the thinking behind that?
2: So I had, I had a few horses at home at where my parents are. Um, and that was, that was going well, but I decided that I wanted to look to go and get some more training from a professional. And, uh, I had done a bit of work and I had like a working people set up with tiny platform when I first left school. And she had heard that Rodney had, um, some stables and kind of was used to doing a working people type thing. so. She put us in touch and it all kind of fell into place and worked out worked out really well. I've I've been here two years now and I get so much help from them on the ground, which has been fantastic.
1: And tell us a little more about the setup that you have there with the yard. How many horses have you got and, and, and how does it sort of work for you?
2: So we've got, we've got about 13 horses on site. I do have a block of like six or seven stables. Um, so my other half, Matt Buckland, also has his horses here. He does quite a lot of show jumping and also really good with the uh, with young horses. He does quite a lot of breakers, um, so it works really well having him about, and we can work as a team. We we have one block of stables, um, and then Rod has another five stables himself. So um, Rod's not riding as as many uh nowadays so it has meant that we are able to use stables and use facilities and work really well. Um we've got we've got really good hacking hill work. Uh, all my fitness work was done on one hill and I I mean he finished Bram on like he could carry on. So um that that's been fantastic. And we're we're so local to so many brilliant facilities. So it does mean that we can get out get out to some really top class Mm.
1: And let's talk a bit about your journey sort of to Brahman with Cooley for sure. What do you call him at home, Greta? I feel silly using his full name.
2: Well, as his um, show name indicates, he's very Irish so his his stable name is Murphy. Murphy. True Irish Excellent. form. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent. We will call him Murphy. So let's chat a bit about sort of the journey that you had getting to Bramham with him. You have obviously moved up to the advanced and four-star level over the past couple of years. And I think your first four-star long was at Bicton under 25s last year, which didn't go quite to plan, yeah. did it? No, no, that
2: didn't go quite to plan. I have since changed my bits, which has made all the difference. And... We've been in, in a good place since, so uh, all going well.
1: Yeah, and you said that you so you had a fall, I think, at, at that Bicton competition. What was that? A case of him being quite strong, and, and what did you change in his bitting to try and, and resolve that?
2: Yeah, I mean, he's always been really keen, keen cross country, and probably a little bit. Sometimes he doesn't always listen when you say "woe." So I, I think a little bit that was what happened at Victon, a little bit of a miscommunication on, I want you here. And he said, oh, but, you know, let me out fences, which actually, as we step up to the four star level, you really need them to be putting their feet where you want them to put them. So, I, yeah, I have I have changed his bit since then, which just gives me a little bit more control. And he actually really likes it. So um, it just means our rounds can be a bit more harmonious and not so much of a... I do, you know, he says he wants to go, but actually he does have to listen to what I say.
1: <laughs> and what bit is he in now that 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 he's enjoying and is working for you as a partnership?
2: He's in a Cheltenham gag um, at the moment. But I, I don't, I show jumping just in the universal, but for cross country, I've got him in a Cheltenham gag.
1: Yeah. Well, that
2: little bit extra.
1: Sure. And I think we all know it's much better to have a horse in a slightly stronger bit where you can take a small pull than to be pull, pull, pulling yeah, in, a, in, in another exactly.
2: bit. Exactly. And I, you know, with this it, being that bit stronger, it does mean that I don't have to touch him coming, you know, in between the fences and then a little half halt when he's with me. I don't, don't want to be going and then having to really fight them to get them back because, one, it's not very nice for them. And two, you waste a lot of time doing that, uh, which I've found I was always a bit of a snail going around the cross country. <laughs> um, but now, yeah, now that I, I can ride a bit more quietly, and and the setup's a bit more subtle but effective. It, it means that everything kind of threads a bit better.
1: Yeah, that's that's understandable. And then you went to Blenheim um, last autumn and jumped around your second four star long with one twenty cross country, and then sort of from there, was it very much your aim to go to Bramham this spring?
2: Yeah. So the aim, the aim, kind of the past few years has been to get to Bramham, but COVID has kind of not really help that so yes the aim was definitely to get here this year and after oh, and I wanted a good I wanted to get round a, a good four-star long um I was really pleased with him at Blenheim um his 20 was a really minor little kind of he didn't quite see where he was going but actually I will I wasn't too concerned he's a very good 20 horse and actually if he can see where he's going yeah, you, you, you know, as long as you kind of get him there, he will do his best to get over them. So I, I was pleased he got round Blenheim, and that you know gave me confidence to be able to come to Bramham because it is a big course, and you want to make sure you are ready to do it. So yeah, I was really pleased, and he, he showed jump brilliantly the sec on the final day at Blenheim, which is a really it had it was really full up show jump track. So yeah, that that was really good to get under our belt.
1: Mm, for sure. And then this spring, I know that you had a win on one of your, your early runs, your first run of the season, I think, in the advanced intermediate Czar Ancestor. And hopefully, did that sort of set you up to, to go into the season on a, on a good note?
2: Yes, I think, I think where he's at now is kind of we'd, we'd worked really hard over the winter to get everything consolidated and um, you know, on, on the flat as well as the jumping. And it was nice. I'd, I had hoped this year he would come out and be competitive. So it was nice that it did all fall into place and we really could go out and and show everyone what we thought.
1: Mm. And when you were going into Bramham, sort of with that in mm. mind, were you quite hopeful that you were going there to be competitive? What was your sort of mindset at the beginning of the week?
2: Yeah, I, I had hoped he would be competitive. I mean, you never quite know what's going to happen because Bramham is a big, big, tough track and anything can happen. But I had hoped if everything did go to plan that we would be as competitive as possible. I wasn't quite expecting to finish in the position I did, um, which was kind of a, a massive bonus. But my aim was to come and be competitive, and I needed to get clear around the cross country to get our five star qualification. And he is—he's at a stage now that I felt we were ready to go and be competitive. So, yeah, it was really nice that it kind of did all go to plan. Um, yeah. yeah, we ended up where we did.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you were eighth after dressage on a score of 34.1 and you sort of alluded to the fact that probably that isn't his, his best phase. Were you happy with your test and how that, how that phase went to kick things off?
2: I wasn't disappointed with him. I, I thought he didn't do anything wrong. He made no mistake in his test. Um, I think I was hoping for maybe a slightly better test. Uh, because I know he is capable of it. Um, he's just, we've got him, we had him really fit, and he was feeling really well, and actually being a, the dress ride on the Friday, he, he got quite excited, and, you know, he does know what a big event is, and he knows what he's got to do, but he, he does get quite excited, and, you know, shaking in the stables every time he showed in the pack, and he just wanted to go and do it, so he probably wasn't quite as relaxed as I'd hoped. But he did hold it together, and he didn't make any mistakes. So there are always bits you can work on, and we will continue to work on them. And hope that with the rest of the events this year, that we can we can improve on it. But no, he was a good boy, and he's still he still finished in a um, a competitive place after the dressage.
0: Hmm,
1: sure and when you first walked Ian Stark's cross-country course what did you think of it and who was there advising you and sort of who walked the course with you was Rodney there or, or somebody else what was your sort of preparation for that all-important cross-country phase
2: well my, I think my initial thoughts were it's definitely Brahman it's big so my first walk round I, I do on my own um, just to get a feel for the course um, and then I, well, I did walk it again with Rod so i right, we then went over the more technical things um had he he kind of goes over what did you think when you walked it the first time, and then we have a discussion on how we think best to ride each each fence and you know we know we know our horse and we know how he likes to jump things um so that was that was good I thought yeah it, you know it they are big, but we knew it was big because it Fraham is notoriously really big, so I think. Once you kind of got over the fact that they were big, you then could look more at the technical side of things. It is technical, um, but I I think it should be at that level. And and actually, I think Ian built a brilliant course. If you got your horse to the fence and you got your line, then it was all quite jumpable. And yet, you 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 had to make sure you rode every fence and you were very accurate with it. But actually. Jumping round on Saturday, it did jump really well. I think it invited positive attacking riding, and when I mean I, I suppose you can see from how it went. It did cause it caused its problems, but when I can really speak from how how I went felt going round. But Murphy gave me a fantastic ride round on Saturday. And how did you
1: on Saturday? Obviously, there were quite a lot of holds on that cross country course. During the first part, yeah. you probably had quite a long wait to go. How do you sort of mentally deal with that? Do you get nervous? Do you watch other people? How do you, as an athlete, cover those couple of hours before your cross-country round, especially when things maybe aren't going that well in the competition as a whole?
2: Yeah, it is difficult. And I think, I'm sure, as you, as you get more experience and do more of them, it's maybe slightly nerve, less nerve-wracking. But for me, you know, th- this would be the biggest track I had ridden um, and I, I was nervous, especially, if, you know, when you think, oh, I just kind of want to go and do it now. And then there's another hold on course. Um, it doesn't help your nerves. And I initially, I, me and Rod sat down and we they had the screens up and we went and watched a few. And I, I like to watch enough that I know what my plan is. And I, then once I, and I'm happy with what I'm going to do, well, I have to stop watching because otherwise I'll start back and guess and I My plan is so I I watched some go well, I watched some go bad, and I decided on what I was going to do, and then that was it. I had to stop watching and go distract myself for the the rest of the time. But yeah, it is it's difficult when when you've got quite a few hours to wait, and the nerves just kind of keep growing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And how do you distract yourself? Is it sort of a? I know some people have a sleep, some people might watch a film. What what did you get up to to try and just keep your mind
2: busy for that time? Um, well, I had, I had a really good support group with me. I had lots of people come come and, and support, which was lovely. I, I sometimes have, a, I did have a little sleep, or tried to anyway. I, I actually, I got my friend back dragging around the shops, so I only to distract myself. Just anything, anything to distract myself. I think the worst thing I could do is sit around listening to the tannoy and and watching other riders i think i just completely removed myself from thinking about it until near the near the time yeah for sure
1: and then obviously you had a great ride finished clear inside the time moving up the order and and lying fifth overnight on the final day how about the uh, the the final day what
2: was that like for you yeah that was that was also nerve-wracking um you know, the course was up to height and it, they built it quite technical. The time was tight. So there, were, there was quite a lot to be done in in the show jumping. And, and Murphy, he is a good jumper and he does really try his hardest. But, you know, he has been known to have the odd pole. I, you know, he's perfectly capable of jumping a clear, but I also was aware that, you know, he could have a pole and it was a technical track and you had to keep your lines quite tight um, so that you you could go for the time. But, you know, that then does increase your risk of getting to the fences in the right way. Um so I think I think I just have to get out there and give it my best shot and and I mean he jumped brilliantly. Um he he actually suits when the time's tight he suits that kind of forwardness that he actually goes really well for that. So the time as much as you do have to think about it is I think for him a bit easier than some horses and um, he's kind of quite com- compact and buzzy, so that actually suits him quite well but you know he, he did jump fantastic and yeah he, he did try his heart out bless him and I was so pleased that, that it paid off and he, he jumped around clear so I was really pleased with him Mm,
1: yeah, and a great final day. Then obviously seeing yourself move up move up the leader from that fifth position into second mm. to be the, the the national champion at the under 25 level is a, a really a real achievement. What's next for you, Greta? What are you sort of looking at as an autumn plan now for you and Murphy?
2: So he's currently having a couple of weeks holiday, which I think he deserves. Um, and then we'll pick him back up later. Uh, probably in the end of July he'll go and have another run I, I'm thinking I'll do a, just a couple of intermediate runs and then we're going to aim or I put myself forward to aim for the Nations Cup Football in Dennis that's in September and then our final aim being Poe at the end of the year
1: Okay, great. So uh, hopefully a five-star debut coming up for you later in the year. We'll, we'll look forward to seeing you there. And finally, before we let you go, Greta, tell us about maybe one or two of your younger horses who people should look out for coming up through the ranks.
2: So, yeah, I've got, I've got um a few exciting young ones at the moment. I've got quite a few that are starting their venting careers uh, this season. I've got a really nice one by Britannia's Mail, um as owned by Lorna McWilliam and Joe Reed called Royal Britannia. He hasn't quite um, but he, he's done a few unaffiliated events, but he will he's going to do some five-year-old classes. And we're going to aim, aim him for the Virgin Event Hall qualifiers. Um but I, yeah, I think he he's showing quite a lot of potential. Um so yeah, it's exciting to see how he gets on. I've also got a nine to six-year-old that we've bred called Daredevil Penny Red. He he's went novice this year. And yeah, I've got I've got a few nice ones coming through that, you know, haven't haven't a lot yet, but I'm I'm hoping in a few years' time they will be they'll be going well. So I'd massively appreciate the owners that I have and the horses that they let me ride and I wouldn't be able to do it without them. Um, you know, they're they're a massive support and you can't I can't run my business and and do what I do without the support of owners so yeah massively appreciate their help great well
1: we will definitely be looking out for you and Murphy coming coming hopefully through to, to run at five star in the autumn this year and, and maybe that Nations Cup debut as well as well as those young horses Greta it's been great to talk to you on the podcast and hear a bit more about you thank you for joining us
2: thank you so
4: much Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound, and I've been joined by my colleague Lucy Elder, who has hot footed it back from reporting from a tremendous week of show jumping at the Dodson and Horrell Baldsworth International Horse Show. Lucy, have you had a chance to draw breath yet? It's a brilliant show packed full of non stop show jumping, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yes, you're right. It is it is so much jumping um but the sport there was phenomenal this year and like you said i've just just about drawn breath now um and having time to kind of reflect and let it all sink in and think again about what i've seen so yeah no it was it was a cracking show brilliant and I guess we have to start by talking
4: about Louis saywell's Seym- tremendous Grand Prix win on Sunday with Kingsborough Casper
0: such an exciting horse and really looks to have come of age now doesn't he he does yes you're right I mean they've got a pretty exciting record to this point but this was kind of their first step up to 150 and three-star Grand Prix and it's a big step up really they won their they won their two-star Grand Prix didn't they Jenna Kesey yes. and their last outing so that was exciting in itself but then to step up again and win again and this it was <laughs> um and he looked he's owned by In and Ruth Dowie and my goodness me he looks so exciting he's impressive isn't he he is isn't he and it's one of the most exciting things about watching sport is seeing those breakthrough moments and uh he looked he looked born to be jumping at this level (laughs) and he looked like he'd be doing it a long time as well so that's That's super exciting
4: yeah I mean she's definitely produced him so well and so carefully you know Mm. he's sort of been coming through the ranks and looking good at every single stage so it's like you say it's one of these breakthrough moments you just say okay this horse is ready to take on the big time now and And, yeah, it's always exciting when you see, especially a sort of home produced horse like that. Very exciting times. Um, And then I guess the puissance is always a real highlight of the show. But this year's win, I had never
0: even jumped the big red wall before. Is that right? I know. And again, this is another exciting moment. Um, I love, it was a a real classic puissance, really. And the sun was (laughs) going down. And if you've never been to Bullsworth before, it's in this amazing amphitheatre of, uh, of an arena with a moat round it and there's banks and the castle in the distance and everyone mm. kind of congregates and sits on the banks to watch and they really, really filled up uh, this year, which is nice because obviously with COVID last year, there were some crowds back, but it was much, much busier this year uh, for, for the Poisson's. And so that was really, really lovely to see. And yes, like you said, Mark Edwards, who's never jumped to Poisson's before, and, and it's Montre- crazy it's just I know <laughs> and that's sport has a real way of delivering a good story at times doesn't it yeah. and <laughs> this was one of them he that lovely homebred Montreux style who is so versatile they won the Queen's Cup at Hickstead last year they were jumping in the Grand Prix as well this week you know Mark is such a versatile rider he's such a fast rider too for them to come out and I mean they came within a whisker of breaking Bolsworth's record for for the wow. Poussants as well so it's is there anything you can't do? Um I it, know, was, yeah, <laughs> it was phenomenal. What were your thoughts on it, Jen?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, I think because he said as well, he only sort of planned to come out and do a couple of rounds, which you'd think if it was your first time jumping a puissance, you'd ha- maybe have one go and say, okay, yeah, I've done it, right, off yeah. I go back home now, large drink or whatever, but yeah. he kept going and kept going. And uh, like you say, that horse has just been winning everything. And, and Mark as well, he's just, there's such a great combination to watch. But yeah, I have to say, I would never have even thought that they would enter mm. a puissance. So um, yeah, absolutely proving their
0: versatility. It was brilliant. Yeah, it was- was. And any other performances that stood out for you for the week? Yes there was a few actually Um, I'll touch on firstly in the Grand Prix Robert Murphy and How Easy they finished third they were the first of the clear rounds actually in the first round of that Grand Prix and it's quite it was an it's an interesting there was a few talking points actually about the Grand Prix Um, the top 25 percent go through which means that it's not guaranteed that everyone's going to be starting on a zero score so oh, yes this year there were three clear rounds but then the top falters after that so it gives a kind of different dynamic actually to to a jump off but in fact the top three uh, were all the three that jumped clear in the first round and robert was one of those i thought his round on how easy was really really mature really exciting again a combination to watch for the future a sort of rising Brilliant. star combination um and there's been a rule change for this year. So it's now one fault per second um, over the time, whereas it used to be one for every four seconds. And that had a little bit of a shift in the dynamic as well, which was just quite interesting. There was a little bit of talk about that and, and what it means in terms of uh, time and how influential that is and things too. So that was quite an interesting point. And outside the Grand Prix, I thought I love the seven-year-old class at uh, the particularly on the final day in the international arena. I think you get to see some really... Really exciting horses coming. Again, it's kind of that step up, what we were talking about a second ago, Jen, about yeah. how seeing those breakthrough moments. And that was one by James Whitaker and Just Call Me Henry, who is by the Great Argento. And what I found so impressive about them was watching how how fast that horse can be, but how balanced, because <gasps> he's quite a big horse and it was quite a serpentine yeah. course. And he didn't seem to lose any any balance any pace um, in making those adjustments and i mean that's that's what you want really for a show jumper isn't it
4: exactly yeah you can't ask for more than that and especially at this as a seven-year-old you know it Mm. could go either way so it's a a big learning curve for these horses so um hats off to them oh it's very exciting yeah i think it seems to be the sort of general theme from this show is there's a lot of very exciting young talent coming through Mm. and it's it can only be positive for the sport so it's a great that we've had this showcase to to see them all absolutely Brilliant. Well, thank you, Lucy. It sounds like it's uh, it's been a tremendous show and uh, time to put your feet up, I think. <laughs> you deserve <laughs> it after all that. You can read Lucy's bumper report in this week's issue of Horse and Hound. Back to you, Pippa.
1: Thank you Lucy and Jen for running us through all the action from Bolsworth last week there. I'm here now with two of my colleagues from the Horse and Hound News Desk, our news editor Eleanor Jones. How are you Eleanor?
5: Yeah, I'm all good, thank you Pippa. Had a bit of a sort of uh, sad and hopefully exciting week this week because I've taken my mare down to stud. So hopefully in a year's time I will have a, a, have a baby to talk about.
1: Oh, are we not allowed to know who her husband is?
5: Yes, he's called Noble Warrior at the Brendan Stud, and he was actually born there the same year she was born there. Um, so they may have been childhood sweethearts, uh, or maybe not. <laughs> and that's where she's gone to, to hopefully get pregnant.
1: Oh, that's mm-hmm. lovely. And remind us what her name is, Eleanor?
5: She's called Panther, and he's called Wombat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> OK, I feel like there's a podcast competition here to name the foal. <laughs>
5: Well, I've also got a Belgian mare whose um her Belgian name is Eileen van der Smeets and I'm desperate to put her to Comil Foe so I can call the foal Come on Eileen. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent. See I was gonna go down the route of like Noble Panther, but now I've got like, Panther now I've got like Panther and Wombat. I'm thinking a bit more like animal names. <laughs> Uh, Well, that is exciting news, hopefully we'll be able to keep up with that on the podcast through the next year or so until the foal is born. Thank you, Eleanor. We also have with us Becky Murray, our senior news writer. How are things with you, Becky?
6: Good, thank you. I had quite a quiet weekend, I rode my horse and that's about it really, but um, I'm trying to convince my partner that I need some jump wings, so I'm trying to get him to build me some, along with everything else I ask him to do on his weekends (laughs) off.
1: It's quite handy at the arena that I use. There are some other, uh, some liveries here at the farm down that down the road who um, have bought some jump wings and I've bought some poles. So between us, we kind of have what we need to build the jumps. Oh, so. okay. <laughs>
6: perfect.
5: That was a smart way to do it as well because then you can use the poles for pole work as well. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> oh Well, I was away last weekend for a friend's 40th and we stayed, it was like glamping. We stayed in what was called a safari tent and it had like a canvas outside and then like wooden division between the rooms inside it was really cute and it it had a hot tub (laughs) oh lovely (laughs) yes so uh, but but there was a lot of like having drinks and then getting in the hot tub at 10 o'clock at night and I feel like now that I'm saying that there might be a safety suggestion that's not allowed
5: uh, (laughs) (laughs) let's let's move on (laughs) listeners.
1: don't don't do what we did but uh, it was a good weekend Moving on, moving on, let's talk about, you know, the serious news. Eleanor, you have been covering the Showing Council Summer Conference, which happened last week, where Rebecca Hamilton Fletcher, who is a vet as well as a showing competitor and coach, gave a presentation. What did she say about the type of show riding ponies that we're seeing in the ring currently?
5: Yeah, so it was a really interesting conference actually. It was supposed to be held in person and then COVID struck uh, a couple of people. So it was was online, but very, very, very interesting. And her talk was uh, titled Suitability of Show Riding Ponies and Their Life After Showing. And uh, she, as, as you've mentioned, she's a vet and a coach and her daughter's competed and she has. So she's got lots of different perspectives, which she thinks is useful. And she says, you know, showing is, is wonderful, and it gives people ring craft and competitive experience, and, and and all these other good things. But she says that should not be at the expense of the welfare of the ponies, and and that's why she was there. And she she was asked whether, you know, asking whether the ridden showing pony is fit for purpose, and she she sort of went straight into the rider size and weight debate which we've covered in the magazine and online and on the podcast and she's saying you know this is targeted at at larger riders who aren't competing them but maybe warming them up and she's saying you know we've talked a lot about social license and we we have to sort of take notice of this and anything that is seen or perceived as abuse of the horse has to be addressed and we have to listen to what's said
1: Mm, Okay, and she also made some interesting points about what happens to ponies after their careers in showing her over, didn't she?
5: Yeah so she she said that um one of the things that that makes a pony uh more likely to have a, a successful second career and therefore a good life after showing is temperament and she says to her it's it's absolutely all about temperament and um, and one thing that has been mentioned before in different debates uh is that that these show classes are for ponies who are suitable for children and she says well that to her that implies that it's temperament is suitable and not that it's only suitable for a child if it's ridden by someone who's a lot bigger for half an hour. So she was saying, you know, a, a pony with a good temperament who's versatile will then be able to to go on possibly if it's not the most successful showing pony can then go off and, and go to pony club and do eventing and hacking and all that sort of thing and, and so therefore you know temperament is key and she's asking whether possibly the characteristics that win classes like the amazing movement and the pizzazz, which is such a great word are they being bred for possibly at the expense of temperament?
1: Mm. And um, I think British Pony Society Chair Paul Cook had some things to say at the conference as well, sort of linking into what Rebecca was talking about. What did he say?
5: Yeah, so he said, uh, which is is definitely the case, the issue of rider weight can be a complex one. And he said, well, we're mainly a, a children's society and they do have age restrictions, but they have to be sensitive because many of their riders are young. Um, and he said, you know, this is all about education on people being unsuitably mounted. They have members conferences every year, but they've got to educate more widely and, and that's what they're doing.
1: Mm. Well, thank you, Eleanor, for giving us a good rundown on what happened there. It's an interesting one. Becky, you have been working on a story about horse owners and the cost of living. Who did you speak to and what is the the messaging coming out of this conversation?
6: So I spoke to the British Equine Veterinary Association and the Farrier Registration Council. I spoke to a Saddler and um, I also spoke to World Horse Welfare. We've been obviously looking at the cost of living before in the magazine and how this has affected sort of competitors and people are understandably trying to save money, myself included for my homemade jumps, but this week we've really looked at the essential horse care side and the importance of not scrimping or putting routine appointments off. Lucy Grieve from Beva said, you know, there obviously are costs involved of horse ownership, but these can only be minimised so far. And by not keeping up with vaccinations or worm counts or routine dental appointments, you're potentially creating a much bigger problem further down the line, which could cost a lot more. And, you know, the message really is that prevention is better than cure. And the Fadder Registration Council said, you know, by increasing the time between visits for a shod horse, you might actually only save one visit per year, which works out at around £2 per week potentially risking your horse losing a shoe as well if you're trying to stretch that time and in which case, you might potentially need your farrier to come out sooner anyway. And were there
1: any suggestions of things that owners can do if they're, if they're struggling with costs at the moment?
6: Yes, BEVA President Hugh Griffiths recommended, speaking to your vet, if you're concerned about you know struggling with payments and keeping that communication line open, you can do things also like making sure you book appointments in advance and a good one is sharing visits where possible. World Horse Welfare also said for anyone that is concerned or struggling and um, to look at some of the advice produced by the National Equine Welfare Council, which is available on their website, and really just reach out to welfare charities who can provide further advice on this.
1: Mm, okay, well, thank you very much, Becky. Coming back to you, Eleanor, you have been writing about a study into the benefits of walking horses over poles on the ground and raised poles. Who did this research? And how did they carry it out?
5: Yeah, this was a really interesting piece of research. This was um, done by a team originally from the Animal Health Trust, which of course is no more. And uh, they said, they found that using poles can help achieve many of the the rehab goals that are set out by vets and, and, and physios and other musculoskeletal practitioners, um, including uh, increasing the limbs range of movement, strengthening muscles, and improving balance and coordination. And uh, Dr Rachel Murray, who is the senior author said, basically they took 41 horses who were all sound and and had walked over poles you know they were used to it and they had sensors everywhere to see what they did and she said you know there have been lots of projects looking at trotting over poles but not on walking but actually walking is is what you start off with in rehab isn't it so uh, and she said in trot that she described it as the horses can be bouncing off their tendons but in walk uh, they have to use their muscles and actually she made the really good point if you run upstairs although that might make you get out of breath actually it does Work your muscles as much as if you walk upstairs. Mm, I thought
1: that was a really interesting point in that story, and mm. uh, it's definitely one that, that was notable. Thank you, Eleanor, and thank you to Becky for joining us today, too. British Horse Feeds is best known for its quick soaking fibre products, Speedy Beet and Fibre Beet, which, thanks to the unique patented process, have revolutionised the feeding of beet pulp. The latest addition to the range is British Horsefeed's Cooked Linseed, a whole linseed feed designed to add condition and top line. We're now going to hear from Sam Draycott. Sam is a farrier based in the south of England who specialises in remedial and laminitic shoeing. Sam has hit nationwide fame sharing his day-to-day work on TikTok and has 2.3 million followers. Over to you, Sam.
3: So today on this episode, I'm going to be talking about lost shoes, um, which is one of our favorite subjects, I'm sure for many, uh, many horse riders out there. Lost shoes are one of those things that can't be helped on some horses, especially if they're incredibly lively um, different types of breeds tend to lose more shoes than others. Your sturdy, hefty cobs from heavier breeds where they've got a wider chest. They tend to, you know, not to be clouting their own feet so much. With the fine horses where they've got a narrow chest long legs short coupled in the back overreaching is quite a high risk and treading on their own feet is also another problem so the way we shoe horses is not purposely to loose shoes we are actually trying to support heels throbs I you can go into fetlocks, any anything with problem we're trying to try to maybe corrective shoeing which every farrier can do corrective shoeing lost shoes is kind of side effect especially if you've got a horse with bar shoes or egg bar shoes. These shoes tend to hang out the back quite a lot to support these back part of the foot. Um, so your risk is quite higher. Also, depending on what the horse is doing, if you've got a horse that's just plodding around, happy hacking, the chance of losing the shoe a little bit minimal, but if you've got a highly strong racehorse or an inventor, these horses are a little a lot more flighty and their actual discipline is a little more energetic. So these things happen. So when you do lose a shoe, the best thing is to not actually turn the horse out, which I know a lot of people quite like to do that because they don't want to muck out and stuff like that. But as you turn the horse out, the actual breaking of the foot makes it harder for us to nail the shoes on. Quite a lot of horses will go foot, foot sore when they lose a shoe. This is purely because yeah, they're so used to having a shoe that when they go without it, they actually feel the ground a lot more. But when we trim the feet, we're actually trimming them down quite quite fast there's not actually much foot for them to walk on hence why we put the shoe on to protect their soles because if you left them too much foot on there obviously their feet would be quite long so the best thing is to keep them in the stable wait to us to get one of us to get there one of us farah's and then we can put the shoe on and pop it on for you obviously lost shoes in the field is a right pain especially if you have a yard manager or someone who's driving around a tractor because they tend to actually get into tyres quite well so if you do lose one Make sure you find it because that is a nightmare for us as far as you as an owner and obviously the guy, whoever's driving around in the tractor. So some horses that continuously losing shoes, one of those nightmares that you have to sort of, if it's doing it, maybe change what's happening or what you're doing. So either preventing, because we've given them the width and length for six weeks to grow to, maybe give them a bit less. So there's less for the horse to catch the edge of the shoes. Or maybe rounding the bottom of the shoes can help beveling it off help and help them stop them from treading on with a sharp edge. Uh, another one that we do tend to say to a lot of people is um, overreach boots um, in the field and um, when they're being exercised, because it's easy for an overreach to be trodden on and ripped off and to be put back on by you, yourself. Or if you actually, if you don't put them on and you pull the shoe off, you've got to wait for us to come out. So overreach boots are quite a good, useful. Bit of kit to help you uh, prevent getting shoes lost. And there are many other tricks to, to pre- like helping to prevent lost shoes. Maybe a smaller turnout for paddocks. Um, if you've got like a 20 acre field, obviously horses can pick up a lot of speed, twisting and turning is where they do it. Um, so a smaller paddock would be great. And maybe if they are in a huge herd, maybe try and find the which, whichever one's upsetting them to um, calm the field down. Just to mention, if you do lose a shoe whilst just out, you probably wouldn't know about it uh, because this horse is full of adrenaline. Um, I mean, it's one of those things, you know, everyone's pumped up. And yeah, unless the horse is actually showing signs of lameness as you're riding, then I'd probably just call it a day. Um, Just one of those unfortunate events. But if the horse is still going, you wouldn't have noticed and you'll probably end up carrying all the way around until you get back and then realize that the shoe's gone but that's just one of those things you can only you can only tell when the horse is actually going lame or we actually notice it by eyesight so that's just one of those things so hopefully there's a few useful tips there and i'll see you on the next episode
1: thank you sam sam will be back next week to talk about hoof cracks Our interview is with British Dressage team medallist Gareth Hughes on his top horse's recent comeback, his upcoming stars and his hopes for the rest of the year. Plus, of course, we'll review all the week's sport and news as usual. Thank you for listening to the Horse & Hound podcast, supported this week by British Horse Feeds. See you next time. The Horse & Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.